Thank you, Nicole. Y'all give it up for Nicole. Thank you so much. I love that we get to do that. Just y'all open up the Bible and read it and pray. Well, good evening. Uh, If we've not met, like Nicole said, my name is Rudy Hartman. I'm really glad to get to be with you. Um, You heard the text that was just read. Uh, It's a lot this evening. It's not just a lot because it's a lot of verses. It's a lot because that text is a lot. We could spend easily the next 10 weeks just in that portion of James, no, no problem. Remember, James is writing, we talked about this a little bit last week, James is writing to an embattled and exhausted church. You, you might remember James, the half-brother of Jesus, who started by accusing Jesus of being out of his mind and ends the, his life saying that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Good news for all of us in the room, by the way, that where we start with Jesus does not have to be where we end with him. He's writing a letter to a group of people who are dispersed abroad, writing broadly to a a, a large group of people. This letter would have been read in communities all over this Asia Minor area. It would have been read by communities, meticulously copied to be referenced and gone back to and then passed on to the next community. So it's not It's not that James is addressing any like specific circumstance here, and yet somehow you hear this text read talking about trials and needing wisdom and doubt and circumstances and endurance and questions for God. And it it seems a little bit like it could have been written today. It's kind of the the way of this living word and this living text that we're, we're opening up. And as I was reading it this week, I was reminded of this story of Perpetua and Felicity. Does anyone know who Perpetua and Felicity is? That's okay if you don't. They're, they're from very early uh, church history. These, these two North African women um, who were alive during the late 2nd century, early 3rd century. Roughly, their story kind of culminates in 203, in the year 203. These were two women who followed Jesus and met while they were imprisoned for doing so. Viva Perpetua was born to a mother who followed Jesus and a father who didn't. And her father consistently like, tried to get her to deny her faith in Jesus Christ. It came to a point one day where it's recorded by Perpetua that, that she was talking with her father who's trying to convince her to, to not follow Jesus. And she points at a jar and says, Father, what is that? And he said, it's a jar. And she said, well, why do you know that? And she's like, because I can see it. And, and she's recorded as saying this, you can call it that because that is what it is. I myself cannot go by any other name than what I am, a Christian. So Perpetua, shortly after that, is in prison where she meets a woman named Felicity. She's a pregnant woman who'd been sold into slavery at that time, likely used by the one who had bought her, had put her trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. There was this incredible movement among the destitute and the lowly in that culture who had put their trust in Jesus, the one who condescended and came down to them when so many other people had looked over them. Uh, This woman put her trust in him. While in prison, she became friends with Perpetua who herself had a child. Um, Deacons from the local church at Carthage actually paid the guards to be able to move them to a nicer part of the prison, but Felicity eventually had an incredibly difficult uh, labor as she gave birth to her child. And the, the guards in the prison mocked her while they watched her give birth. And as they did, she's recorded as saying, now I am the one who's suffering, but in the arena, another will be suffering for me because I will suffer for him. Two days later, both of these women were dragged in front of an arena in Carthage in North Africa, the year 202 or 203 BC, and they were beheaded for sport 
simply because they followed Jesus. This is 150 years after Peter is writing this letter. This is 150 years of movement in the local church. This is an embattled church, an exhausted church. That is just one of so many stories within the early church where imprisonment and violence in particular were used to debilitate and discourage people from following Jesus. So James is writing into this culture 150 years prior to an embattled church and an exhausted people to help them see God at work in the midst of their suffering. Just imagine living that life, embattled and exhausted, and then you read these words from verse 12. Blessed is the one who endures trials. Because when they've stood the test, they'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. If you're familiar with some of the words of Jesus, you'd you, you might sound like that's similar to something Jesus himself said. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, you're blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. Those are like powerful words to say in a room like this, but if we can just be honest, it's a really difficult gap to jump from trial, suffering, and insults to blessed. Can we just be honest in the, like, we don't have to, like, like, that's a pretty significant gap to try to move one to, to, to the other. Further, if we're honest, this experience of hardship and suffering isn't something that's entirely avoidable. If someone was to ask me if I thought that suffering was optional in life, I would have to say no. I know it's not been an option for a lot of you actually in this room. This has basically become like the pinnacle of Western economy, if you look at it. It's this idea of like suffering alleviation. This is how you could summarize how many presentations are made in marketing, politics, lifestyles, brands, etc. Do what I tell you. Think like me. Believe like me. Do my thing and all of your suffering will go away. Except it often doesn't. This idea of suffering is not something that is so unfamiliar and yet sometimes is so underspoken of. And I just have to be so clear here. Jesus does say that there is a day where those who trust him will never experience suffering again. That in eternal life with Jesus, when he wipes away the tears that have flowed from our experience of death, sin, sickness, brokenness, pain, suffering, and a hundred more specific things that each and every single one of us in this room have dealt with or are currently experiencing, he wipes those tears away from our eyes forever, but he simultaneously does not ignore or discount the reality of our experience of suffering here and now. Neither does James, and so neither will we. Let me say it like this. When Katie was up on the stage and she said something like, welcome to Salt Company, like you're welcome at, at Salt Company, we don't just mean when we say that the parts of you that are all like cleaned up and without questions. We mean like your questions as well. And, and this is a good question that a lot of people in this room perhaps have asked or, or are asking or one day will ask. If God is good, then why is there so much bad? Like why is life hard? Why is there pain? Why does James even have to talk to us about counting it as joy when we experience suffering at all? Why is there evil? If God is good, why is there so much bad? There's two ways to approach that question. You could approach it philosophically or you could approach it emotionally. We don't really have time to live in the philosophical realm of this question. The, the philosophical realm of this question always ends up in the emotional aspect of this question because suffering is not sanitary and pain is not a philosophical thing. It is real. 
So I want to address the emotional reality of it through this one question. Why is life hard? Let me just give you the Christian answer to that question. Life is hard because sin is present. Now you may hear me say that and and think that I'm talking about like direct consequences for our own sinful activity. Um, And while there are direct consequences for our own sinful activity, there's also this reality that sin has actually permeated the system of reality within which we all exist and live. There is also a systemic experience of sin, both as a result of the actions of groups of people external to us that impact us negatively, and sin that's just woven into the fabric of our reality that's been there since the third chapter of the scripture, when sin enters into the universe. Sin permeates the state of existence that we find ourselves in. For this reason, Paul in Romans chapter eight actually writes that creation, all of what we see and all of what we know, all of what we experience is groaning for the children of God to be revealed because creation itself was impacted by that first act of disobedience against God by Adam and Eve, by humanity. Sin stains all of our existence, all of our reality was once marked by peace and wholeness and shalom and then sin shattered the fabric of that peace. And here we are today, experiencing that same reality marked by sin, from betrayal to disease to natural disasters to corruption to war. The realities and impacts and marks of sin permeate our reality. Life is hard because sin is present. And while sin may have broken life, it, however, did not break God. And of all the verses, this makes me think of John 3, 16. Perhaps you are familiar with it. For God so loved the world, hold on to that phrase, the world, that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Note the subject there. God so loved the world. The world, this is the idea of cosmos. It is both the people and the place. If he wanted to say God so loved the people, he would have said God so loved the people. If he wanted to say God so loved the earth, he would have said God so loved the earth. But he said God so loved the world, the cosmos, the people and the place, the totality of all that is and that is experiencing this permeation and effect of sin and its systemic effects. Yet Christ comes to live, die, and rise again for the sake of liberating those who are trapped in personal sin in relation to God and from the permeating reality of sin in the cosmos. Christ comes so that we might know that God is good right in the middle of experiencing that life is hard. Because of what Jesus has done, the Christian is actually able to sing these lines from the song, Firm Foundation. Katie asked me earlier if I was gonna sing. I'm not, I got you. But I want to just bring these songs to your mind. I love these. I've still got joy in chaos. I've got peace that doesn't make any sense. So I won't be going under. Because I'm not held by my own strength. Because I've put my life on Jesus. And he's never let me down. Life is hard because sin is present. But hope is available because Christ has come. I've no doubt that if we were to sit across the table from one another and share a cup of coffee at Union Commons, root blend, no cream, uh, and we were to dig into your story, it's likely that you could tell me about times that you have experienced suffering or perhaps that you are currently experiencing suffering. And maybe some of you in this room, you've had lives that have been relatively easy to this point, apart from perhaps the collective traumatic experience and impact of 2020, what was for so many. 
that would be tough to articulate for you any suffering that you have experienced. So for those of you who have experienced suffering, I want to offer you tonight some rock-solid hope from this text. And for those of you who haven't, I want to help you prepare for the moment or the moments when suffering does come. Because you are a breathing human, it is difficult to consider suffering as optional. And so to that end, I want to take you through this section of scripture. That was all set up to get into the text. This section of scripture and point out four things that can happen to borrow from James when, not if, when you experience various trials. James, talking to the embattled and exhausted bunch of people, is trying to lift their eyes and ours up to offer us hope that in Christ our suffering and our pain and our trials and our testing, the things that we experience that make life hard are not meaningless. I love this quote from Timothy Keller who writes about suffering and he says, it'll be on the screen, that Christianity teaches that contra fatalism, suffering is overwhelming and contra Buddhism, suffering is real and contra karma, suffering is often unfair but contra secularism, suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it and if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. So to that end, Four things from our text that can come as you follow Jesus through various trials. These are for the note takers. Number one, maturity. Or maybe you could write wholeness. Look at verse two. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. James writes to us and says, consider it a great joy. Now this needs to be clarified. James is not saying, be excited about the suffering that you're experiencing. He's saying the suffering you're experiencing is real. He's not trying to explain it away, not trying to push it away, not trying to ignore it. He's saying the suffering you're experiencing is real. It is really painful and it really is going to produce something in your life. Suffering, pain, trials, they have this tendency to push on your faith in Jesus, test your faith in Jesus. And it is often in these places where your faith in God is tested that you actually develop a deep endurance or a deep perseverance. There is a kind of strength that is cultivated by carrying the load through a trial, through testing that is very difficult, if possible at all, to cultivate in a different way. It's a trial that feels like endurance and that provides maturity, completeness, lacking nothing. Another word here that's used is wholeness. There's something that trials and suffering and pain does that isolates for you as you live your life the things that are really important. There are phone calls that you can get that can make things that you thought were ultimate disappear immediately from being important in your life. There are phone calls you can get that can focus you single-mindedly on this is the only thing that I care about right now. Where I was distracted by a million things, this is now the only thing on my mind. There are seasons and stretches you can go through that will cut away things from your life that you thought that you needed but realized were ancillary at best. I don't want to um, illustrate this with a hypothetical. So if you'd permit me for each of these, really, I'm going to just bring you into my life, specifically a period of time when I lived in Pennsylvania and was helping to replant a church. While there was so much joy in that experience, I commend church planting. I love it. There was also uh, so much pain. 
it was easily one of the most testing experiences and periods of my entire life. There was this one week in the fall of 2020 uh, where it basically felt like everything in my life just systematically fell apart. Um, that fall was in so many ways beautiful, and in others it was so, so brutal. And it was one of the most maturing seasons of my entire life. I believe that maturity should actually be measured in decades and not days. So that's only three years removed from me right now. I don't think I've actually learned everything from that pain and from that experience of that fall yet, right? I I think I'm still actually growing from that, to be honest. There were just things that seemed so important to me before that simply were not afterwards. I I followed Jesus. It felt like I was following Jesus through what felt like the valley of the shadow of death. He matured me in that place and he was making me more and more whole as I followed after him. As I met with some of you, you've heard me say this. If you ask me, how are you doing? And I'll usually say something like this. Well, I feel near to Jesus and near to Molly and everything else is either uh, bonus or manageable. And that's not just like something I say That's something that came out of uh, this time of deep maturing and intense pain where I was like, here's what's important in my life. Here's what I've matured. Here's where I'm at. I always want to be near to Jesus. I want to be near to my wife. And and other things might start to creep in. But ultimately, if it's good, that's gravy and that's bonus. If it's bad, that's manageable. So long as I'm near to Jesus and near to her. That that was just, that, that was stuff that, pain developed inside of me. I, could, I should have been able to look at my life and said, these are the two most important things. And it was through just experience of like, of like deep like pain and difficulty that those things got sharpened up. This is the command of Jesus, to consider it a great joy. That became my baseline. I can look back on that time that I would have given anything to get out of in that moment, and I can look back on it and say, I actually can consider that joy now because that matured me in a way that little else could have. In the middle of it, as you follow Jesus through your own valley of the shadow of death, you realize two things. One, that he's with you, and two, that he's maturing you. It's an interesting phrase here at the end in verse 4, though, where he says, lacking nothing. What would be something that you think of in trial and suffering that you might feel like you're lacking? This brings us to our, our second thing. The first one's maturity. The second thing that is produced and and developed inside of us as we uh, go through difficulty is wisdom. Verse 5, now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. If you lack wisdom, James says, you should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly. That every time we experience trials or suffering and pain, the reality is this, we all go somewhere for wisdom. We all go somewhere for a combination or, or one of these three things, knowledge, perspective, and direction. Uh, knowledge collectively represents what we know or what there is to know about what we're trying to navigate. Perspective has to do with how we see the thing we're experiencing. Direction has to do with how we live through what we're experiencing. And what, what often happens to us is that we actually want answers and not wisdom. We want the quick way out. We want to alleviate pain as swiftly as possible, which totally makes sense. I just think that sometimes when we do that, we can have a tendency or at least there's a threat to make decisions that actually cause our situation to grow worse. Um, If every time you feel stressed, this was me in high school, if every time you feel stressed, if the wisdom that you lean on 
uh, results in you saying, I'm going to go get blackout tonight with my boys. Like, it will not, and, and, that, and that, like, I know that that will, like, help me not feel things for a little bit. My perspective is that there's actually no other way out. And my direction in this is to drink until I don't feel or don't have to think about anything anymore. What I'd done there is I chose a wisdom that ultimately was not very wise and could very easily make my situation worse. So you pick the thing that you run to in hopes of escaping what you're experiencing and just consider it, just question it for a moment. Does it actually alleviate the suffering that you're facing or does it just create an endless loop of escapism that leads you right back to where you started? Look, the verb here isn't if you lack wisdom, you should wise yourself up. It says if you lack wisdom, if you don't know what to do, if you need help experiencing, navigating what you're experiencing rightly, if you need guidance on how to navigate it, how to see it, you should ask God. It speaks to this relationship that Jesus Christ has come to make us to have with him. He talks to a relational interaction between us and God where you can go to scripture and build a foundation of wisdom, of knowledge, of perspective, of direction as you intake the Bible and you start to see a story that leads us to Jesus. You can come to him in prayer and meet with him in prayer and you can ask him as you pray to God, God, I need wisdom, would you help me? Going back to that fall of 2020, I'd spent the last few years really working on my prayer life. All the men and women that I respected and looked up to that followed Jesus, um, they all prayed and fasted. So I wanted to follow them like they followed Christ. And when I hit this stretch in the fall of 2020, I realized that there was a choice in front of me. I could continue to just escape over to my phone and get lost in endless scrolling to try to like shut my mind off and numb myself to what I was experiencing. Or I could go on my back porch in my townhouse that overlooked some woods in the backyard, sit on one of the chairs I'd refurbished and pray and ask God for help. I just became aware that I lacked wisdom. And so I learned how to ask. I would just sit back there and I'd read the Bible and pray because I needed the wisdom that God promised that he would give. And when it came, I learned how to relationally trust him and not doubt the wisdom of his words, but instead through simple obedience, deepen my dependence on him. Now, a great thing with this is that you don't have to wait until something happens to ask for wisdom. You can actually just ask now. You can get in the word now. You can pray and ask for wisdom now. You can strengthen your dependence on his wisdom as a discipline in your life now. And then when in the future, if whatever that looks like, trials and sufferings come, you have something to fall back on. You have rhythms and practices of seeking God and asking him for his wisdom that you can fall back on. You don't have to develop them in the midst of your suffering, but rather you can lean back into what you've been developing over time. And, and as we ask for wisdom, we ask regardless of our circumstance. So the first one's maturity and the second one's wisdom. The third one here is endurance. Verse 9 let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in their humiliation because they'll pass away like the flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flowers fall off and its beautiful appearance perishes in the same way. The rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Verse 12, blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. 
So James is writing to people in all circumstances, the humble and the rich, to remind them that trials come to everybody. The strength to endure them comes from a very specific place, though. Look at the back end of verse 12. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Some uh, of Molly and I's friends recently got us into watching Formula One racing. If you don't know what that is, very cool looking cars, very fast, very dangerous. Um, the season actually starts in Bahrain this weekend, so we're pretty pumped. Um, so to remember what happened last year, Mal and I were watching a documentary on the 2022 season, much of which I'd forgotten. And we're in the trenches of one of the 10 storylines of the year, and I'm sitting on the couch, like on the edge of my seat on the couch, like blanket up snacks in my mouth like just like watching this race because I actually don't know what happens and Molly comes back in the living room with a bowl of boom chicka pop and she like like it's just cool as a cucumber sits down looks over at me and she's like are you okay and to, which is a valid question because I was sick for like six months so I just looked like I was like not doing well and I was like no I'm fine I just don't know what happens next and she she looked at me and she said oh you don't remember <laughs> I looked over at her and I realized in that moment, I'm like, oh, you remember what actually happened because you were paying attention during the season. I was not. Um, and, and, and it was this moment where I'm feeling stressed as I'm watching this all fold out and she feels fine. I'm stressed and she's fine. And that's because there's a type of contentment and endurance that comes from knowing how the story ends. She was watching the race. So she's like, oh, I know what happens. I'm watching it like I have no clue. Don't get this scripture twisted the text here does not say endure trials because if you do then you will earn the crown of life this crown of life that's returning to the referring to the eternal life that Jesus offers to those who put their trust in him as Lord and Savior that he crowns you or he marks you or he covers you with his life this says endure trials because for the sake of what's coming because you know what is coming because you know how the story ends you're crowned with life you'll be with him forever Christian you remember eternity's a long time everybody spends it somewhere so Christian your endurance in suffering and testing and trials is not to earn eternal life it's actually fueled by the life that is already yours because of what Jesus Christ has done the future hope of that crown of life of the eternal life that's yours in Christ actually strengthens you in the present to endure the thing that's in front of you it's in the practice of remembering this hope that's stored up for us in heaven that we're strengthened and we cultivate endurance I've heard it said that you can sometimes be too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. <laughs> and I, I get that. The idea of being so removed from the things that are happening around you, so separate that you really don't care about what happens around you, that there's no communal element to your life with God. It's just you and him and everyone else can kick rocks. And I would say that's actually not being very heavenly minded at all. That's just being selfish. What if being heavenly minded means that you so often remember and meditate on and recall the hope that you have in heaven, the crown of life that Jesus has promised for those who love him. And what if that actually fuels an endurance in the present that even in the midst of pain moves you to love God and love the people who are around you because you know how the story ends? We need to remember how the story ends to endure, and we need others to remind us of it as well. I know it's in the middle of the semester, 
But if you haven't joined a connection group or if it's been a little while since you've gone back to connection group, I commend you, I implore you, I like borderline beg you to consider jumping into and continuing in your connection group because we all need people who will help us remember how the story ends when we struggle to remember it ourselves. When, when the pain of life feels so great that we, our vision is clouded, our brains are so full of other things that we, we forget or we don't attend to that hope that we actually have in heaven. I've benefited so immensely from this in my life. In that same fall of 2020, uh, we would meet in the backyard of the house of a couple, Dan and Sandy Rowe. I've talked about them a couple times. I love this couple so much. Um, Dan Rowe was just a man of prayer. Like he would just pray all of the time and he would often put his arm over my shoulder, this older dude, I just, just so just gentle and strong. And I, he'd put his hand over my shoulder. I'm like bigger than he is and taller than he is. And, and he would look at me and he'd say, I've been praying for you and I want you to remember. And then he would just say something that I just absolutely needed to hear. That absolutely gave me strength for that moment. That reminded me of the hope, reminded me of who I was in Christ. Hey man, I just want you to remember, it was the simplicity one time, I just want you to remember that Jesus loves you. And I was like, oh, yeah, he does love me. Like it's gonna, yeah. Like it was like simple things like that that you can just so forget or feel so rote in those moments when things feel so difficult and painful. His words were a gift from God to clear the clouds in my life for me to remember this crown of life, to remember how the story would end. We need people around us to be that kind of person to us. And we need to be in these communities of connection groups so that we can actually at times be that for others. It's an endurance that we actually are able to hold on to as we remember the way that the story ends. We remember that Jesus wins, that he's risen at the end of life and that we are actually able as we put our trust in him to know that we will have that same crown of life. We'll have eternal life with him forever. Maturity, wisdom, endurance. And finally, what comes as we follow Jesus in various difficulties and suffering is clarity. No one undergoing a trial, verse 13, should say, I'm being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. And then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. When we experience a trial, a testing, suffering in parts of life, there are always temptations that come along with them. Our desires, impacted by the sinful reality that we've talked about, draw us often away from the wisdom of God into other or lesser things. One thing that following Jesus through suffering does to us is that as we do it, is that we remember the hope that we have in heaven and we endure. There is this intense level of clarity about who God is that comes to us. Look back at verse 13. No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. James then goes on to do an anatomy of sin, saying temptation comes from our desires. When we give into temptation, we sin. And when we sin, it eventually grows up into death. And then James 16 says, do not be deceived. James is warning us against the potential of the testing that we are experiencing, the pain that we're experiencing, forming within us a dysfunctional view, an incorrect view of God. A view of God that says God is tempting me. And because he's tempting me, he can't be good. He is warning against being deceived. Deceived by what? By ourselves, by others, by anything that would try to influence us to see God any other way than he describes himself. 
Just think about this for a moment through the words of uh, Jesus in John 16, 33. Just to give a picture of this. Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I've conquered the world. That's Jesus. Jesus articulating who he is. Jesus articulating what we'll experience. Jesus saying, you'll have suffering, but there's also hope. Suffering and hope. You see, suffering without hope is a lot like materialism. And, and it creates this view of God that says, God doesn't actually care about me. He, he's left me alone. I'm, I'm here to figure it out on my own. Suffering or hope without suffering isn't materialism as much as it is mythology. This idea that everything is fanciful and good all of the time and yet you still experience suffering can cause you to start to think none of this is real. Or you personalize it and you say, I'm too messed up. Or you spiritualize it and you say, I don't have enough faith clearly. And you develop a shame around following Jesus. Suffering without hope, hope without suffering, neither of those is Christianity. Christianity holds both suffering and hope because Jesus holds both suffering and hope. In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. I've overcome the world. See, Jesus suffered. This is the way of the cross. Uh, Isaiah 53, this will be on the screen, and talking about Jesus, says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone that people turned away from. He was despised. We didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our pain. We in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquity. Punishment for our peace was on him. We all went away like sheep. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. This is Jesus suffering for our sin. We do not have a God who is unfamiliar with suffering, who is unfamiliar with pain. At the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus weeps, knowing that he's going to raise Lazarus from the grave. Why? Because he's holding lament and hope, suffering and hope. All at the same time. In the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is under such intense stress. That the capillaries under his skin burst. And he begins to sweat blood. Even though he knows that he's going to rise again. Suffering and hope. We do not have a God who is unfamiliar with suffering. Another quote from Tim Keller. He says we don't know what the reason God allows suffering is. But we do know. That the, what we do know that the reason that God allows suffering isn't. It isn't because he doesn't love or care for us. He loved and cared for us enough to condescend, to suffer and to die for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. Christianity can hold suffering and it also holds hope. Back to Isaiah 53, I wonder if you caught the ellipse that was on the first slide. Let me fix it for you and fill it in right there, underlined at the bottom, that, that he was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. It's the hope of Jesus. Jesus heals us. So we've talked about this before, but that word healed is the root of the word that we often use to describe what Jesus does, which is save. Jesus suffered. He knows our suffering. But he also provides us who trust in him a hope, 
a hope that he provides for us in our suffering, in our trial, in our maturing, in asking for wisdom. There's a hope that fuels endurance, a hope that corrects and clarifies dysfunctional views of God that question if he's good and replaces them with words like this from verses 17 and 18, that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who doesn't change like shifting shadows. He's consistent, and by his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The hope that he offers through Christ is that his good and perfect gift for us in our suffering is Christ himself. The fact that he chose to give life through Christ's words of truth also reveal that he will sustain this life in us now and through eternity. Yes, Christian, in this world you will have suffering. I've got to say it. It would be easier not to. We could talk about happy, clappy things all we want, and then you walk out of this room and this building and into a world that seems like it matches up with nothing that we talk about in this room. Which then makes it very easy to consider perhaps God actually has nothing to do with what we talk about outside of this room. But in this world, you will have suffering, and you will have trials. But take heart. The tomb is empty. Take heart. Christ has overcome the world. Yes, suffering is a part of our reality due to sin, but hope is offered as a part of our reality as well because of what Jesus Christ, our Savior, has done. So to that end, I want to ask you to just take a moment to respond. You can close your eyes and bow your heads if you'd like. The band's going to come up. Don't worry about them. But I just got two questions that I want you to consider as we close our time. The first if you're not a Christian, is this. Is there any part of you that at least wants to love Jesus? Think about verse 12 when it says that he who stands the test of faith will be given the crown of life which he gives to those who love him. You see, we love God because he loved us first. He makes the first move in every circumstance and every single time. He's made the first move to come to us, to send Christ to us. And it is in Christ's death that we see suffering, but it's in his resurrection that we see hope. The gospel holds both suffering and hope. And I wonder if there's any part of you that at least looks at that and says, I want to know that, Jesus. I have incredible news for you this evening, if that's true. Um, the God who loved the world also loves the you and has sent Jesus Christ, his son, so that you who would believe in him might not perish, but have everlasting life to be able to bring your suffering and your pain to him and for him to be your true and living hope. Not a cheap hope, but a hope that actually wells up into life eternal, an assurance into eternity that he is with you and that you will be with him. So I wonder if perhaps you might say, I want that. I wanna put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and as my savior today. You could do that tonight, right now in this room. Perhaps some of you who follow Jesus, I think the question as I've prayed for you has simply been this, um, what do you need? Like in the middle of your suffering, in the middle of your pain, in, in your moments of difficulty, of questions, of doubting, of struggle, like what do you need? 
my invitation to you tonight is simply to ask God for it, to, to come to him. If through Jesus Christ, he has adopted you into his family, if you were a child of God, you can come in and ask your father. You can ask God for what you need. You can come to him in prayer and you can just ask. You could bring frustration, you could bring anger, you could bring all of the weight of your pain, but I wanna encourage you to ask. Do you need help considering it joy as you are matured through your pain? Do you need help even asking for wisdom? Do you need uh, help with, with a perspective to actually to see endurance and to remember the story in moments when things feel cloudy? Do you need help having clarity on who God is as good and who God is as consistent and who God is as the one who chose to give you life? Do you need help remembering those things? Just ask. I'm gonna give us a moment here. However you need to respond in prayer, you can do it. And then we're gonna sing, we'll worship, and we'll end our time.